Hey guys, thanks for joining me today for today's episode. I promise this podcast isn't solely focused on 19th century Oklahoman history. And as fascinating as that topic is, my aim has transitioned to more explain current events through historical lenses. It's no surprise that right now one of our biggest challenges is our fight against COVID-19. The other day I was reading the Houston Chronicle where every day they share a list of patients who had died from COVID. Their name isn't listed, but their age, their sex, their ethnicity, and whether or not they had any pre-existing health conditions is all shared. And I noticed that in the reports, a lot of the deaths were minorities. So this piqued my interest, and for a couple of days, I followed the Houston Chronicle, and over and over, I noticed that many of the COVID deaths are African-American. So I dove into the John Hopkins COVID National Database, and I was digging through the data, and what I found was that what I thought was a regional trend in Houston is also expressed at the national level as well. Research done by APM Research Lab has found that when normalizing for age, African-American populations have a 3.7 times higher mortality rate than white populations, and that's just attributed to COVID. A close second is the Native American population, which has 3.5 times higher mortality rate. So let's put this into context. African-Americans represent about 12% of the U.S. population, but they also represent 23% of all COVID-related deaths. The biggest disparity between the two data sets is in New York, where black individuals die at four and a half times higher rate than white individuals. Michigan, it's 6.3 times higher. and Connecticut, it's 2.6 times. In every single state in the union, When you normalize for age, black mortality rates outpace white deaths regarding COVID-19. Now, this is an extremely complicated issue. I'm aware of that. It's ingrained and attributed to a wide variety of socioeconomic issues. The Brookings Institute has written a lot about this, and they've attributed this to a couple of observations. First, occupations. Many black folks are more likely to be a part of essential workforce employees. So, for example, 30% of bus drivers, 20% of service workers, they're black. So they're overexposed. Also, many live in densely populated areas or homes that have a lot of co-inhabitants, which makes social distancing obviously a lot harder. And of course, access to healthcare is a big reason as well. Many live far away from hospitals and pharmacies, and this also doesn't help that there are a lot of core morbidities that leads to higher levels of hypertension, diabetes, and this is all used to explain the statistics that were observed in the John Hopkins COVID database. Roshan Ray, a sociologist with the Brookings Institute, captured the complexity of this problem by saying, when America catches a cold... Black people get the flu. African Americans in the healthcare system have a rather complicated relationship. Ray notes there's a racial health disparity or a racial empathy gap in pain tolerance. Black patients are half as likely to receive pain medication as white patients. This is because there is this false assumption 
that black patients are more likely to be addicts. So if they're given adequate pain medication in the ER, they may not be given the necessary prescription for when they're discharged. Sociologists have observed that black patients are mostly spoken to rather than listened to. And of course, the lack of representation in the medical field also doesn't help. Only 6% of physicians are black. There are actually fewer black doctors now than there were 40 years ago in 1978. So you can most definitely understand there are a plethora of issues that go behind the complexity of this relationship. But you can understand why there is some degree of mistrust between the African-American population and the medical community. As I was researching this dynamic, I found that there's actually a term that describes this phenomena, and that is called the Tuskegee effect. And when I read that at first, I was like, wait, what? Why is it called the Tuskegee effect? The only thing I know about Tuskegee is that there were a group of airmen who fought in World War II, but that's pretty much it. So I decided to dive in, and honestly, what I found was truly awful. And then I started to understand why this and studies similar to this, both exposed and not yet exposed, have created this mistrust with the black community that exists to this day. At a high level, the syphilis study started in 1932 and involved 600 black men who were all poor sharecroppers. The 600 men were divided into two groups, 400 of which had syphilis, uh, which is a STD, and then the remaining 200 served as a control group. But the people in the study, they were never told that they had syphilis. Instead, they were told that they were being treated for bad blood, which is a non-medical term. It's used to describe pain and fatigue. So pretty much it means everything, but nothing at the same time. The worst part was around World War II, it was discovered that penicillin could effectively treat syphilis, but the medical staff intentionally and actively refused to provide penicillin because they wanted to see how syphilis evolved to the end of an individual's life. This study lasted for 40 years. Originally, it was supposed to last for six months, but it was pushed to 40 years. Penicillin existed for a treatment to syphilis for 25 years before this unethical study was exposed. And when I read this, I thought to myself, damn, no wonder it's called the Tuskegee effect. And as you'll see from all the different layers and every institution that was involved, there was a catastrophic level of failure with the sole intention of using black bodies as human guinea pigs. So in this pod, we'll cover the origins of the Tuskegee syphilis study, the study itself, how it was exposed, and more importantly, where we stand today. I used a lot of resources in this pod, but none more than the interviews and work done by Dr. James Jones, who wrote Bad Blood, the Tuskegee Syphilis Experiment. And this is a name that I want you to remember because it will be used a lot, James Jones. I highly encourage you to read his book and check out his interview. I'll post links in the pod, like always, in the pod notes. But first, let's take a break before we dive in. Obviously, in November, we will have an important election. So please make sure that you vote. 
Please note that in Texas, you do have to register to vote 30 days before the election day. And in Texas, you can't register to vote online. You have to do it either in person or through mail. So uh, please make sure you check out Rock the Vote or any other voting registration website, which will give you information. So going back to the pod, I'm going to give you a little background story. In the early 1900s, there was an active movement by large philanthropists to help fund public health initiatives. And one of the families that actually helped push this initiative was the Rockefeller family. Another family that was actively involved in particularly advancing black health was the Rosenwald family. Now, you may not immediately know who the Rosenwald family is, but they were one of the key partners behind Sears. The head of the Rosenwald family was Julius Rosenwald, and he was a big fan of Booker T. Washington. Now, Booker T. Washington, he was a former slave who became an internationally renowned intellect for advancing black lives and was the founder of the Tuskegee Institute. Rosenwald wanted to know how he could help the black community, so he worked with Booker T. Washington to create schools for black children in the South, all over Texas, Alabama, etc., Rosenwald also wanted to alleviate health problems in the black community, so he worked with a man named Michael Davis, who was from the Northeast, to lead this effort. Michael Davis, he's never worked with the black community, so he starts asking for references from the medical community to see who can partner with him to help this uh, public health endeavor. And so he gets referred to this individual named Dr. Clark, who was really, really focused on studying syphilis. He considered syphilis one of the biggest threats to the public health at the time. Now, uh, obviously, we can't talk about the syphilis study without talking about syphilis. So a note to the audience, it is a sexually transmitted disease. So if, or if there are kids nearby, please, you know, you may want to pause or fast forward here for the next 30 seconds because we do have to talk about what syphilis is. And syphilis is a sexually transmitted disease that is caused by bacteria. Syphilis has several stages, primary, secondary, latent and tertiary. In the primary phase of syphilis, the genital organs usually form something that looks like an ulcer, but it's painless. In nine weeks, it then moves to the secondary stage where it's actually the most contagious. The bacteria moves from the genitals to the bloodstream where the bacteria actually starts to attack the cell's that line blood vessel. And so the body will respond by sending white blood cells to fight the invasion, and this leads to inflammation. You'll start to see rashes appear all over the body, which also just represents where the white blood cells are fighting the bacteria. And you'll see it everywhere, literally from the palm of your hands to the base of your feet. And this is a telltale sign of syphilis because very, very few diseases actually do this. These rashes can erupt, and this is where it particularly becomes contagious and they're full of this bacteria and it can easily be spread. Uh, within two years of initial infection, you move to third stage or latent syphilis uh, where there's no more ongoing symptoms of syphilis. But the last stage of syphilis, which is the most dangerous, it's rare, but it occurs 10 to 30 years after the initial infection. And this is where people can start to develop neurosyphilis which is the invasion of the central nervous system and can lead to paralysis. The other form of tertiary syphilis is cardiosyphilis, where there's an infection of the cardiovascular system, 
which are uh, attacks the largest blood vessel in the body, the aorta and the heart, which leads to the widening of the aorta, which will cause the heart to work much, much harder. And by widening the aorta, it makes the walls of the aorta thinner. And eventually, it will make the aorta pop and kill someone within a minute. This obviously is a terrible disease. It's highly contagious. And if it does reach tertiary syphilis, it leads to awful outcomes. And the reason why I described this is Dr. Clark was particularly infatuated with investigating tertiary syphilis. So back to uh, Davis and Clark. Davis and Clark investigate six different black communities with varying different socioeconomic backgrounds. And they find that the better off communities with better access to health care, like in Virginia, the various communities in Virginia, they found lower rates of syphilis in the black community, about 3%. But in poor areas, they found the infection rates to be up to 30%. So with funding from the Rosenwald family, Davis and Clark, they build a bunch of local clinics and they start treating individuals with the treatment at the time, which was mercury and bismuth. Obviously, one is poisonous and one's radioactive. But this did have a little degree of success, but it was the form of treatment at the time. But then in 1929, you have the stock market crash. And with the crash also goes much of the Rosen. Wald family wealth. So Rosenwald actually pulls funding from the study and from the various clinics. But Dr. Clark, he doesn't want the study to end. He wants to see the effects of tertiary syphilis, which again, as described earlier, is rare, but if untreated, can lead to cardiovascular or neurosyphilis, both of which are just awful. So he decides to continue the study for one more year in 1932. In this next stage, Clark enlists the help of two younger doctors who would put together this next phase of the study. So they intentionally go to the poorest of the six communities, Mason County, Alabama. They go to the participants of the original efforts and say, hey, we're bringing back the Rosenwald treatment program. But that was a lie. The original Rosenwald treatment program actually tried to help those who are struggling with syphilis. But this time, the intention was to not treat the individuals who are struggling with syphilis so that the doctors could study how untreated syphilis would develop through throughout a person's life. Winger and Vondelier, then they go to the Tuskegee Institute which, as previously mentioned, was founded by Booker T. Washington, who at this point had died, and now was run by its second director, Robert Rusa Moten. The Tuskegee Institute was a particular interest of Winger and Vondelier because it housed the Andrews Hospital, and they wanted to use its medical facility. So here, Dr. Winger and Vondelier actually tell the director of the Tuskegee Institute, Rusa Moten, the truth that we have told 600 participants of this study slash program that we're going to treat them for bad blood, but we're actually not going to 
do that. We're actually not going to tell them if they have syphilis. What we want to do is we want to see how syphilis changes over time without treatment. And shockingly, Robert Rusamotin agrees to this. And a side note, Robert Rusamotin is a black man. His head doctor at the Andrews Hospital, Dr. Dibble, also a black man, also agrees to this study. And through Dr. Dibble's main nurse, Nurse Rivers, who's a black woman, they're able to build really strong relationships with the participants of this study. Nurse Rivers is of particular importance because she acted as the liaison between the subjects of the study and the doctors. So she was absolutely in the know. In fact, she would drive the participants from their home to the hospital. Why would she drive them? Because the physical state of some of those who were being tested for bad blood, quote-unquote, was deteriorating so badly that they couldn't walk to the hospital. In fact, when there was a national initiative to treat syphilis in the 1930s, and physicians would come into Macon County, Alabama, she would tell them to not treat these 600 particular men because they were in a study. And, you know, honestly, when I look back at this, it, it makes me livid and angry because it's it's disgusting. And in the most sinister sense... It had some degree of biracial support. I, I don't know how you can do this to anyone. Nonetheless, people who you promised to help, I, I just don't get it, especially in the medical community. So as Vondelier is continuing this study, after a year comes to a close, he writes to his boss, the originator of this study, Dr. Clark, that they shouldn't stop this study. We've learned so much. But Clark says, hey, look, Without the Rosenwald's funding, we just can't run this program any longer. We were able to run it because we lied and said we were going to treat, but lying doesn't cost any money. So to untreat, you can run it, but we've just completely run out of fundings. So Dr. Clark actually pulls the plug on this project, and then he subsequently retires. But guess who takes his spot? Of course. Dr. Vondelier. And with Dr. Vondelier taking his position, that ensured 40 more years of support and funding for this unethical study. Vondelier is what I'd call it witty slash evil. He intentionally would put young doctors in the Tuskegee syphilis experiment so that as they would grow older and they would gain accolades, they would actually become staunch defenders of the syphilis study. And thus, as a consequence, tragically, this study is never seen by eyes outside of the PHS or a public health system until 1972 when it's exposed. How did this study work? Once a year, doctors from D.C. would come to Alabama. They would see all 600 participants do a yearly quote-unquote wellness check, which was actually an investigation to see how far the disease had progressed. Nurse Rivers would pick up the participants, uh, drop them off, and if she saw that they were struggling, she would offer them an aspirin. Which, you know, a lot of these sharecroppers, they're poor, they're illiterate, and they thought, hey, here's a medical employee who is giving me some medication and they trusted her. But obviously, aspirin's not going to fight off syphilis. And the reason why Nurse Rivers would do this is so that they would trust her. And it's actually later uncovered that Nurse Rivers, when she would find out that 
one of the participants of the study was about to die, she would actually set up an emergency appointment at the Andrews Hospital so that they could get quote-unquote the best treatment, but they would of course end up dying at the Andrews Hospital, where they would then have an autopsy on the body so they can see how the syphilis had spread. And the government would then pay for the funeral of the participant of the study so that the family wouldn't know what exactly happened to the body of their loved ones. So of the 400 participants who had syphilis, 128 died from or related to syphilis and its complications. Many of the participants... I don't even like calling them participants, to be honest, because they were lied to. But many of the participants, they spread the disease to their spouses and also to their children. Syphilis can lead to stillborn births. It can be passed on through pregnancy. It's an awful disease. And throughout this time, as they were doing this study, they published 14 articles that openly discussed the pathology of untreated syphilis in a black population in Alabama, and no one said anything. Especially after 1942, when it was widely known that you could treat syphilis with penicillin, no one stopped the study. Not only were those who were leading the study let the study continue, they actively fought any attempt to help these participants. But before we dive in, we'll take a short break. Please make sure you vote. Again, we have a big election coming up in November to register to vote before the actual voting day. Many states you can register online. In Texas, you can't. So please check out Rock the Voting. So back to the pod. Dr. James Jones, the author that I noted earlier of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, noted that there's at least three specific times when the investigation could have been stopped but wasn't. First is in 1941, when obviously the United States was in World War II, about one third of the men were draft eligible. But if they're drafted, and they run a health screen through these individuals, they would find out that they have syphilis. And then the army would treat them with penicillin. But the general surgeon at the time actively tried to make sure that these men would not get drafted so that their syphilis study could continue. The general surgeon wrote letters to the draft board saying that these men are soldiers of science. So don't draft them. In 1943, the Henderson Act. The Henderson Act is a state public health law that required treatment of those who have infectious diseases to be treated at state cost. Again, they would have been treated, but PHS circulated a list of names of the men who were in the study to make sure that they weren't treated. And then, of course, after World War II, you now have an abundance of penicillin. Dr. Heller who was head of venereal diseases, who under his watch, penicillin was developed, refused to provide penicillin to the subjects of the study. One could argue that Dr. Heller didn't know what was going on, but that's not the case. Dr. Heller was in fact in charge of putting together the original control group for the Tuskegee study. So there was no change for 40 years. The study was first exposed by a social worker in 1968 
four years before it was forcefully stopped. Peter Buxton was a social worker in San Francisco whose job was to, ironically, when looking at current events, was to contact trace those who have STDs and provide them information and resources for treatment. During his work, he learned that there was a group of men in Alabama who had syphilis, who weren't being treated, and this was actually a study that was supported by the PHS. And this guy, he's 27 at the time. He just can't believe what he's hearing, so of course he does some research, and he comes across the 14 studies that were published by the PHS. And he can't believe his eyes. So he goes to his boss and says, hey, this is wrong. What are we doing? And his boss tells him to shut up. He then goes over his boss and writes to the PHS where they fly him out to Alabama, where he's met by a panel of physicians who all worked on Tuskegee. And they beat him up verbally saying, you don't know what you're talking about. You're not a doctor. You don't understand the value of our work. So at this point, Peter goes back to his home in San Francisco defeated. He gives it a couple of months. He rereads the 14 publications and he writes a letter again to the PHS saying, I may not be a doctor, but I do know a moral issue when I see one. And this is wrong. Based off your own work, these participants were not notified that they had syphilis. And then you intentionally deny them of treatment, especially when penicillin is available. And your study also notes deaths and infection rates. You guys are complicit. And then he adds the most badass one-liner I've ever seen. And that is, I don't know if a jury would find you culpable of murder one, but they would absolutely contemplate murder two. And this, my friends, freaks out the PHS. And then they convened this special committee, which again was comprised of physicians who were all involved with the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, except one doctor. And they debate as to whether or not the study should continue. And of course, they all agree that it should continue. And they come to the conclusion that the study actually needs more resources. By this time, Peter Buxton, he has given up on the PHS and he goes to law school, but he never forgot about the Tuskegee experiment. So in 1972, he actually provides a journalist, Gene Heller, information about the participants of the study who are actively being denied treatment. And in the summer of 1972, Gene publishes four successive damning articles accusing various medical institutions of conducting this Tuskegee syphilis experiment and I've provided her article in the podcast notes. And the public response is exactly what you would have hoped and expected. Disgust, outrage, and outcry. PHS is in complete disarray. The whole thing's a mess. Of course, in the beginning, they try to defend it. And then there's pressure on the president. And the president demands an investigation. Who was the president at the time? You guessed it, the Honorable Richard Nixon. It's one thing to accuse institutions of committing gross malpractice and negligence, but it's a whole other thing to prove it. The families of the Tuskegee study hired a young black lawyer by the name of Fred Gray. Now, Fred Gray, he's not just any lawyer. He's a damn good lawyer. 
He represented Rosa Parks. He represented MLK. He brings this case to court in Alabama, but he brings the lawsuit to Judge Frank Johnson. Now, why is Judge Frank Johnson special? He's the guy who struck down segregation in bus terminals, struck down segregation in Alabama schools. So he was a civil rights hero. And as a side note, this guy went to law school with Governor Wallace of Alabama. And for those of you who don't know who Governor Wallace is, he's the infamous governor who said, segregation now, segregation tomorrow, and segregation forever. Literally, the two could not be more different. So Fred Gray had the best judge he could ask for. But in the pre-trial phase, particularly in the discovery phase of the investigation, he asked the federal government for these documents that supported that there was a study that supposedly lasted for 40 years. And of course, the federal government responds, we can't find these documents. Shocker. And of course, without these files... There simply is no case. Fred Gray has already lost the fight without it having even started. Enter James Jones. The name may sound familiar, and that is because James Jones is the author of Bad Blood, the book that I have quoted quite a bit in this podcast. In 1970, James Jones was researching STDs to understand their origins and how they spread, so he spent quite a bit of time in the National Archives in Washington, D.C., where he comes across four boxes of material that supported a study of untreated syphilis in Alabama. And remember, this is two years before the news of the study officially broke out. So he thinks to himself, hey, this is in the archives, so people must know about this. And although he finds it interesting and makes a personal note of it, he moves on. A couple years later, in 1972, James Jones becomes a fellow at Harvard. And he, his original thesis was working on some social policy work. But then, of course, later that year, this case breaks out that uncovers the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And James Jones immediately changes his focus of work from public policy to the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And he calls the National Archives office in D.C. and says, Hey, I'm with Harvard. A couple years ago, I came across these boxes, and this is the focus of my work. Is it okay if I come back and do some work on this? And the deputy archivist of the United States, Albert Lessinger Jr., informs James that the files have actually been moved from Pennsylvania Avenue to the National Records Center in Maryland since his last visit, and that he's under strict orders to surrender it to the Justice Department once they have been found. But essentially what happened is when they were moved from Pennsylvania to Maryland, the files couldn't be located. And it's not because they were hidden. It was because the office in Maryland was just a complete disarray. It's a disaster. So Albert tells James that the folks who run the center in Maryland are actually all his former trainees. And he tells James that I'll have them help you locate these files. 
And obviously I can't give you these files because the Justice Department's looking for them. But I'll do the next best thing. See, Albert didn't trust the government. James Jones in his interviews described Albert as a socialist. So he just didn't trust the government in general. So what Albert does is he directs his folks to make copies of all of the files of the syphilis study. And not only that, he also directs his folks in Maryland to provide a stamp with the seal of the archive. And the reason why that's important is because that seal would make these documents permissible in court. So in the slim chance that the government were to somehow misplace or couldn't locate these files, James Jones would have a second copy. So James spends about two weeks trying to locate all the files, and of course, he finds them. He gets a copy of the files, gets them stamped, and a couple months later, he reads in the New York Times that Fred Gray, the attorney of the Tuskegee men, requested from the federal government a copy of all of their documentation on the Tuskegee syphilis experiment, where the government responds, we could not locate these files. And I'd imagine James Jones smirks, and then he proceeds to call the office of Fred Gray. The next morning, Fred Gray shows up to James's home and finds boxes and boxes of documents from the first six years of the syphilis study. They bring this before the judge, which gives him enough ammo to give a court order to the CDC to open its files to Fred Gray, where he and James find five filing cabinets of information on this study. Of course, with all this damning material, the government knows it's lost the case. So they end up settling with the men in the Tuskegee study and eventually extend it to their families as well for $10 million and lifetime medical care for any ailment. The irony. So what happens afterwards? Not one person who actually conducted the study or oversaw the study was even tried in court. Raymond Vondelier, who decided to extend the study and pushed for the continued non-treatment of the men, actually becomes the head of the CDC from 1947 to 1951. Another doctor, Dr. Cutler, who was involved in the study, went on to Guatemala in the 40s, and intentionally infected soldiers, prostitutes, and orphans with syphilis to again see how the disease progressed. When he comes back to the States, he does similar experiments in New York prisons. No joke, this guy went on to become the Assistant General Surgeon of the United States in 1958. Fred Gray, our hero attorney, becomes a renowned attorney throughout the United States, where he presents to the Supreme Court 11 different times. The irony of all of this is that this happened after the Nuremberg trials following World War II, where the West was complete disgust of how the Nazis did medical experimentation on innocent people, many times children, and thus the Allies pushed with strong reinforcement from America, the Nuremberg Code, which in 1947 established the rights of those in clinical trials. And 30 years later, it was uncovered that similar acts were happening in the U.S. In 1947, Congress passed the Research Act, 
which heavily regulated the use of human subjects in medical experiments. It required researchers to get voluntary informed consent from all participants. And all human subjects were reviewed by institutional review boards. It was largely influenced by the Nuremberg Code, and it led to the rise of the study of bioethics in the United States. Rules and policies, of course, changed several times over the years, with the latest one being in 1996, when President Bill Clinton created the Bioethical Advisory Commission, which is tasked with regulating policies and updating procedures to ensure all possible safeguards for research participants. And remember that all of this happened not so long ago. This ended forcefully in 1972, only after it was exposed by Peter Buxton. And who knows, honestly, how long it would have continued if it wasn't for Peter. So let's bring this back to 2020, where the impact of the study is still being felt. As mentioned earlier, there is still some degree of mistrust between the black and medical community. In fact, after the Tuskegee syphilis study was exposed, black life expectancy actually decreased for a short amount of time, which was largely attributed to their trust with doctors because of the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. And who who could blame them? The medical community has embraced much of the changes that were required of them, but there still remains a lot of work to do. In listening to patients, not making prejudiced assumptions, the medical community has really pushed for better representation within its staffs. In 2000, only 3% of all doctors were black. About 20 years later, it's now 6%, which is a big increase. It it has doubled. But you also have to remember that 13% of our population is black. So there is some work that has to be done on that front. And also a lack of black participation in medical research today is still attributed to the Tuskegee experiment. There is quite a bit of underrepresentation in black medical experiments. And again, who who could blame them? History is incredibly complicated. And this tragic event, both black and white individuals committed awful deeds against the Tuskegee men. From the white doctors who conducted the experiment to the black medical staff who manipulated the trust of the Tuskegee men. But we also must remember that it was both white and black voices that brought justice and help to these men. From attorney Fred Gray to social worker Peter Buxton. What this has taught me is that history many times is vile, disgusting, but we must look back at it and actually improve. Not just give lip service to improving as a society, but actually working to make small yet incremental improvements to collectively get better. And damn it, to think that Macon, Alabama is 30 miles away from Montgomery, Alabama, which was the epicenter of the civil rights movement, and this continued after the civil rights movement. Who who would have thought? It didn't cross anyone's mind that this was immoral, those who were running the tests. And especially to add it on top of this happened after World War II when the entire world was disgusted by what the Nazis had done to those who were forcefully put in medical experiments. It's it's shameful that this could have happened here. We need to hold ourselves accountable. 
We need to be better than we were yesterday. It's it's not good enough to just say that, oh, this happened in the past. Because we have to remember the past was not so far away. Peter was 27 when he started to first ask questions about this study. Gene Heller, who broke the story in the New York Times, was about 26, 27 when she published her article. And now there are parents age. When we look at high death rates due to COVID in the black community, I know it's not attributed just to the Tuskegee effect, but we cannot ignore its effects even to this day. There are several other socioeconomic factors that also play a prominent role, and we will investigate those in future pods, especially practice of redlining. Thanks again for listening to my podcast, guys. I really appreciate all the love and support you have given me. Also, special thanks to my medical review board, Samia Avni Anisha, for making sure that I had the medical nomenclature and terminology correct. As always, guys, I will post sources to the pod notes so you guys can nerd out. Please stay safe and please, please register to vote. I love you guys. Take care. Till next time. Thank you.